A shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a bud shall blossom. This beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 11 reminds us that our Lord God can indeed bring wonderful life from that which appears dead. Hello, this is Father Thomas once again, and welcome to another of the Sprouting Stump podcast series. In this series, we dive theologically and spiritually deeper into various topics of our faith that might need a renewal so the grace of God can blossom more fully within our hearts. In this talk for his new manna retreat, Father Thomas provides deep insights into the first face of the new manna, bread of life, reflecting on manna as food. Father would like us to reflect upon this relevant scripture passage that is found in John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. We find this referenced in the Holy Mass during the Eucharistic Prayer 2, when the priest says, We offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation. And now here is Father Thomas, continuing his talks in his interactive style. Okay, let's just take a moment to quiet ourselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, you are the new man to come down from heaven. As we continue this beautiful retreat, we ask that you continue to send your blessing upon us. We might open ourselves up, always welcome you as the bread of life. We might continually seek you for nourishment in our hearts and our souls. And you be the food that we feed upon, food that we always turn to in our time of need. Help us to not return to Egypt, in spite of all of their tempting foods. We always recognize there is no food greater than the food that you give us. You are the man to come down from heaven to nourish us on a journey to the promised land. Pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So, if anyone would like to share their answer to the question, as far as if you were in the desert, how would you treat the manna? I think it would depend on the day. Some days I'd be really grateful, and other days I'd be really sick of it. I would be grateful, but I would be one of those bad ones that would collect more than I'd eat. <laughs> Once or twice. Yeah. Well, once I once it's spoiled, I, I get the message, but I'd probably do it at least once. Hopefully, so it's like a diet. How many times do we remember that diet? Nothing good cheap. Nothing good cheap. Yeah, that would kind of stink, right? Oh my gosh, I really want to like eat something else, and there's nothing else. You open up your refrigerator. What do you have? Manna. You open up your cupboard. What's in there? Manna. You open up the other cupboard, and you got a little bit of quail. <laughs> Remember, they fed a man in the morning and quail in the evening time, so he didn't make him eat nothing but manna. But that was what was supposed to start the day. It was also an indication of that. So, But, of course, we're not in Israel for 40 years, or I'm in the desert for 40 years. So, I suspect that we'd probably be all a little bit like the Israelites. And you know how I know that? How many of us have never sinned? Okay, that's always an easy question. I already know the answer to that. Nobody raises their hand, but I know all of us are sinners. And how many of us sin? more than what we really want. I mean, let's face it, that even the great saints would sin once in a while, but we tend to sin way more than we think is acceptable. 
because we're just like the Israelites, not trusting the manna and wanting to go back to Egypt. We complain in our own way. And every sin is a complaint against God. We just don't voice it. All right. So now we've got our music coming up. So what song is it that we're doing? Spirit and Grace. All right. Spirit and grace here in this field. You are the wind that breathes through the field. Gather the wheat and form us in Christ. Come be our source and
Okay, well now we're looking at the first face of the new manna. The bread of life. There's a reason why the first face is the bread of life. Now, how many of you have ever been in a relationship with a slice of bread? <laughs> well, if you're like really, really hungry, you might like start to look at it something like you want to be in a relationship with it. But for the most part, we're not in a relationship with a piece of bread. But Jesus calls himself bread. In fact, if you look at that first line there in Scripture, in John chapter 6, before he talks about eating of my body, eating my blood, the rest of it, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, whoever believes in me will never thirst. And then again, line 51, or verse 51, I am the living bread come down from heaven. So he calls himself bread. So why would he start off saying, I am bread? Because he's going to feed us. Right, because what's necessary for life is food. And of course, bread was a staple of almost everybody's diet throughout the whole world. It's always been bread is one of those commodities that people just have access to, but it's always been a main part of people's diet. So he comes to us and says, before anything else, before you can take another step in this journey to the promised land, you need to have the basic necessities of simple living. And our spiritual life is no different than our physical life. In fact, if you really think about it, everything that we deal with in our physical life is simply an analogy of what we deal with in the spiritual life. That's the way God made us. That's the reason why he created the universe the way that he did, because everything that we experience in the, in the, the physical world points to reality in the spiritual world. So we need food in the physical world. It's one of the first things. In fact, when a baby is first born, what's one of the first things it wants to do after it cries? It wants to eat. I mean, what's the first thing most people, when they want to first wake up, they're usually thinking of breakfast. Unless you're one of the people that says, I never eat breakfast, but then when lunchtime, I mean, whatever. But the point is, rarely does a day go by that somebody's not saying, I'm hungry, I can't wait for bliss, whatever. Food is simply a part of our life. We need it. Now, back then they didn't have all the fancy stuff like the Twinkies and the cupcakes and things like that. Bread was necessary because it provided for calories and nutrients. Now they could probably live on their diet without eating any bread at all, but then they probably would not have enough to be able to sustain them properly. Now we've been talking about the manna in the desert. This was not simply something that grew on the ground that they went off and they ate. Now it described it as like a little cakey type substance, kind of like honey cake. So it probably is kind of like eating frosted flakes a little bit. And after about two weeks of that, it's like, oh my gosh, I need something more than Tony the Tiger. Anyway, so it provided something more than simply, you know, something to fill their belly. God designed it to provide them whatever nutrients they needed in the physical world. So they didn't have vitamin packs back then. You know, they didn't have this one-a-day stuff that so people could eat a bowl of ice cream and then take my vitamin and say, oh, I'm getting the vitamins that I need. They needed something that was going to provide for them. We also have to remember they were in the desert. Now, we don't tend to appreciate that. But how many of us 
have gone outside in one of the days during this past summer and realized it was kind of hot out. Now, how many of you have worked outside in one of the hotter days for more than three hours? Okay, at the end of three hours, how do you feel? Terrible. Pretty good, huh? Okay, so imagine trekking through the desert for eight, nine hours. And we're talking about the desert. We're not talking about Carrollton weather. We're talking about, but you don't live in Carrollton. Either way, the point is, uh, it was hot, it was dusty, it was miserable. They needed something to be able to get them through that. Their body was going to require more, so God provided them something more. Now, if we all went through life and had no problems, and everything was great, and all we ever received was love, and everything was wonderful, and every time we tried something, it worked out, we never had bad days, and our cars would always start, we never had to deal with traffic, and every time we went to a light, it was always green, and everybody else obeyed the rules, and everything we ate tasted good, and we never had health problems, and the computers always worked, which we wouldn't need in a perfect world because they always just, they're the tool of the devil that does aggravate us. We could almost argue that we didn't, we didn't need the bread of life because spiritually, everything would be going fantastic. If all we're getting is love and goodness, and everything around us is something but love and goodness, why would you need love and goodness? You're already getting it. But we're not. So Jesus comes to us and bread. One of the first things he wants us to realize is, before you can live the life that I want you to live, you have to be nourished with something more than anything else can give you. Because no matter how hard we try, we can't be enough without that nutrient, without that bread of life. It's a basic necessity of simple living, and that includes our spiritual well-being as well. You can't get to paradise through Buddha. It doesn't work, no matter how much you want to meditate. You can't get through it through yoga. You can't get through it through you know, trying to be nice to people. You can't get to it any ways except for our Lord Jesus. We need something greater and he is that something greater. We have to take in more in order for us to be more. How many of you ever looked at the diet of a uh, professional bodybuilder? And after the steroids, 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 they actually eat some real food. Have you ever seen their diets? Some of them are taking in 8, 10, 12,000 calories a day. That's more than a bowl of ice cream, by the way. I mean, at some point, you would think, I can't eat that much. Well, because they're pushing their body to a higher level. Now, ignore the fact that it's full of steroids. The point is, they're pushing it more, so they need something more. Now, we are called to be bodybuilders spiritually. Our souls should be pumped up. Our hearts. In fact, it's a perfect analogy, because what is the heart is a... Is a muscle. Now, recognition that the fact that the truth is, theologically speaking, all of our goodness comes from our soul, not the heart, but the heart is what the organ we talk about as far as where goodness flows from. Even Jesus referred to that. The heart is a muscle. So we need to push it to a higher level, don't we? Well, if you push something as far as a muscle, you try and push. How many of you have ever tried to do a sports activity after you've not eaten very well for two or three days? What happens? You mess up. You just, no matter how hard you think you're trying, your body's not cooperating. 
those triathletes, they have like a very specific diet that they follow because they knew if they don't follow their diet to exact tea, they're not going to make it through the grueling marathon and the swim and the bicycle. Well, we can't make it through this grueling marathon of life and expect our heart to be stronger if we're not feeding with something that is better. And that something better has to be beyond what this world provides. Why does we have to have something more than what the world provides? Because what kind of heart are we supposed to have? We have a human heart, right? But what kind of heart is it supposed to be? A what heart? Heart of Christ. Which makes it, if it's not human, it must be the divine. divine. We're called a divine heart. Which means we need divine substance. We need divine pill, so to speak. Our one a day has to be something more than what we can get over the counter at Walgreens. It has to be something that only God can provide. That's what he was telling the people in the desert. I said, you can't make it. No matter how much food would have been in the desert, even if they went back to Egypt and got all the food they needed for 40 years of a journey, which that would be like a really big refrigerator, even if they were able to somehow make that happen, they would have still not made the journey. Because they needed something more, because the end of their journey meant they were supposed to be in a higher state than they were before. See, we always think about their journey as simply going through a bunch of land to get to another piece of land. Do you know what their journey to the promised land is to the Israelites? What was their promised land? Land of milk and honey. What was Canaan for the Israelites? What was the ultimate promised land for the Israelites? Through what? Because the promised land was not heaven, why wasn't it heaven? Because it was not yet available to them. So God is not going to tell them that after after this trek that you're going to get to some place that's not available to them yet. So the end of their journey was supposed to be something that was actually of this world, but a little bit higher state. What is in this world that's in a higher state in this world? You answered it earlier. Church. Church, the mass. This kind of is a surprise to people. The promised land for the Israelites is a liturgy. That was the ultimate goal of what God was leading them to. It just took them like hundreds and hundreds of years to ever get there because they were so stubborn, they weren't ready to accept it yet. So for them, what we're experiencing today is the promised land for the Israelites because We are of this world, but we get a touch of the divine. Going over to the promised land and just having a bunch of land available was nothing. They were called to be a higher state of being. He wasn't going to pull them out of Egypt so they could simply be the same people, just with a different land. That would have made no sense. What was God's promise or his, when he made his agreement with Abraham, and Abraham would kind of kick this whole thing off, what did he say that was one of the things, as part of his promise to Abraham? That Israel was going to be, he was going to be the father of many nations. Many nations who were supposed to be what? A chosen people that were supposed to be what to the rest of the world? What am I doing? Blessing. They were called to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So they couldn't be a blessing if they didn't have something that was higher because the world cannot provide you with blessings. Only one thing can provide you with blessings, and that is the divine God. 
So if they were going to be a blessing, though, they had to be of a divine people. So they had to participate in some way in the divine life. God intended when they got to the promised land to build up for them what we experience now. That was his plan, but they were not ready to accept it yet. Right after they got to the promised land, what did they do? They messed up. <laughs> Read Judges, for goodness sake. Yeah. I mean, every time they got something good, they, they, they threw it away. He kept giving them more and more, and they couldn't deal with it. And because they weren't ready for that, it took a thousand plus years after David, when they had a nation, David actually brought the nations together. They had everything that God had promised them at that point. So all the tribes were united as one nation. They were actually at that point the strongest entity on the planet. To remind you of a particular country that we happen to be living in and what happened. And they had this with King David. He united the tribes together for the first time. They were one people with one place of worship, one God united. The rest of the world feared them. They had everything they could possibly want. And what happens right after King David? We have King Solomon. Solomon. Okay, and what does King Solomon do? Takes many wives, many companies. And many what else? God can deal with his wives. Many gods. Many gods. When he was hanging out with all of these women, he was worshiping their gods. And what happened right after King Solomon to the, to the nation? It splits. They had everything. They couldn't even last it through two kings. But the only reason why God didn't split it with King Solomon is because of his promise to David. Because of David's goodness, it allowed it to stay that long. Because Solomon, it should have split while Solomon was still in reign, but it waited until afterwards, and then it splits. And then from there, it just falls downhill. Just because remember something, that we're all on a desert journey, and it doesn't end until we get to the final promised land. See, for the Israelites, the promised land ultimately would have been what we experience now. Because they could have fulfilled the promises that God made to them. In fact, the church is the fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham because the church is what to the nations? Blessing. A blessing. And we touch the whole world. And so we fulfill the very thing that God had promised. And we are one people united in spite of like all of our dioceses and everything. We are still one church, one nation under God a blessing to the nations that continues to grow. Or the fulfillment of what God told Abraham. Now, after they reached their promised land, and Jesus came, he elevates everything. So Jesus is the new manna, right? So if the old manna was to prepare them for what we're experiencing now, what is the new manna supposed to prepare us for? Heaven. Heaven's a little bit higher state than this, right? So if we're going to be prepared for heaven, we have to be what kind of a being? Ultimately, divine. a divine being. Now, we're always going to be human, but we need to enter into that divine life. And so we need a divine substance. And that's why Jesus came and said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here as far as the, 
the points go, it's kind of hard not to talk about Jesus without touching all the faces of it. But he says, you need to consume me as an act to be nourished by something greater than what you can get in this world. If we took out our faith, no matter how hard we tried, we're never going to be good enough for heaven. We're not good enough with heaven with Jesus, to be honest with you. But at least we can take steps in that direction. Without that nourishment, we've got no hope. And you know what the amazing part of this? This is something that I really want people to appreciate about the bread of life. About how we know this is not simply a cracker that we get. It's representation. We'll talk about that more later. He calls himself the bread of life. So how many Christian churches are out there? Oh. You're not even close. You're like 55,000. Can you believe that? 55,000 different registered Christian denominations out there, whatever it might be. I mean, the Baptists probably have like 45,000 of them by themselves because of the Baptist East, Baptist South, Baptist West Road, Baptist Road Road. I mean, you go down the road, they call themselves a different name, and they got different pastors, different beliefs. Not to criticize them, but the truth of the matter is the entire Protestant faith is a bunch of broken-off religions. We've got tons and tons of them. Now, how many of them have the Eucharist? Absolutely none. Because even the Episcopalians at one point who thought they had it didn't have it because they broke away and they never regained that because of their attitude. So even if they think they have it, they don't got it. Now, how is it that 500 years after Luther did his ridiculous thesis and causes all these problems and Calvin and everybody that jumps on the bandwagon and causes a mess. Why are they still in existence even? How are they able to survive? They're not united to the true church. How are all these other Christian denominations even able to exist? And let's face it, they do good work, don't they? Some of them do good work. And some of them are really good people. I mean, we're not going to in any way say that they're bad people. There's a lot of non-Catholics out there that behave better as Catholics than they than, than Catholics do. So what keeps them going? I can take you in front. What even keeps the Hindus going? What keeps the Buddhists going? What keeps the Jewish people going? Faith and desire for God, for something more. Our desire will not get us there. No. Because man's desire is of man. man. So in order for us to get higher state, we need something more. more. No. What is that something more? Jesus. Jesus as the Holy Spirit. As the new manna. As the new manna. This is going to shock people. The only reason why Christian churches are in existence is because we have the bread of life. Our participation and that meal feeds them because we are a blessing to the nations. When we take in the bread of life in faith and we allow it to nourish us, it nourishes the rest of the world. Do you want the world to end? Eliminate the Eucharist. Because we can't survive. Goodness cannot be without the presence of goodness. So the Protestants owe their existence to the same bread of life that we owe our existence to. It's enough to keep the world going. 
But if you got zero, the world stops. He says, I am the bread of life. life. You must take of me in order to live. And I thought about this. He says, well, there's lots of people out there. In fact, the majority of the world is not taking in the bread of life. In fact, the ones that do take in the bread of life, a lot of them aren't doing it faithfully. So the numbers are relatively small. So how are they continuing a life? How are they continuing to be good people even? How do they have any chance whatsoever? Because the church teaches that you do not have to be Catholic to one day get to the promised land, at least not in this world. So I'll make a disclaimer, anyone that's watching, there are no non-Catholics in heaven, by the way. You're be thinking, what? <laughs> Absolute truth. You have to become Catholic before you enter into the divine liturgy. Because what we experience in the Mass is what would we say? Is heaven. The taste of heaven, exactly. So if you don't like the Mass, you're going to be bored for eternity if you get there, because that's all that it is. It's an eternity of that beautiful entrance into that wonderful sacrificial meal of Christ. We just get to experience it in a little bit different way. But our participation in the bread of life is actually provide for the nourishment for the rest of the world to continue on. And I want you to think about that, because that means then that when we participate in faith and in goodness, in the bread of life, we take that in and we allow it to nourish our own hearts. It brings a blessing. So what does it mean when we take it in and we do not allow it to nourish us? When we do not take it faithfully, we do not take advantage of it, it does what? It's a curse. It blocks the very grace that we're hoping that we, so the blessings that we're wanting to impart aren't there. And if you don't have a blessing from God, what happens? America today! Yeah. Have you noticed that in our country, less and less people are appreciating the Eucharist, less and less people are taking it, less and less people are participating in any way? Do you see what's happening? Yeah. It's not a coincidence. Jesus says you must take of me, not just for your own life, but for everyone else's life as well. And that means the people that are saying that they're faithful and taking it, that means that they have a greater responsibility. I preach this to my own people, so this is anyone that's watching this, one of my parishioners says, ah, Father, I already knew that. You say this all the time. <laughs> we have a responsibility, the faithful, to step it up. We can't stay at this level, because you know what happens when we stay at this level? If we're living our lives and we're staying status quo, we're not striving for something more, what do you think is happening in the rest of the world? Okay. Exactly, because if everybody stays at the same pace, there's nothing to cause people to grow. In a relationship, if it's not growing, it is stagnant. There's no such thing as a stagnant relationship. You ever seen stagnant water? What happens to it? It gets filled. You're either growing or you're dying. There's no such thing as stagnant. The human body works that way. The cells are either growing or they're dying. There is no stable cell. Something is happening. Our spiritual life is the same way. If we're not growing in our spiritual life by taking in the bread of life and allowing that to really nourish us and accepting what that is, then we ourselves are dying. And if we're dying, the rest of the world dies with us. People always ask, when is America going to turn itself around? 
But Catholics turn themselves around. We are the chosen people, everybody. We are the new Israel. But we're too busy complaining because guess what? It's not enough, God. Oh my gosh, I gotta go to Mass? That manna stuff? I don't even like the taste of wine. It's like, bleh. <laughs> I actually say that sometimes. Oh my gosh, I've been to some places like that wine is horrible. Anyway, but I have to remind myself it's not wine, it's the blood of Christ. And if it tastes like Kentucky liquor and I can't stand liquor, I would drink it anyways. Maybe y'all think it, I would take a lot more of it. But anyway, so we need that. So it's important to understand that when Jesus gave us himself the bread of life, he meant life for the entire world. And it's through that participation that we bring life. And we'll get into more of that in a little bit. Anne's like back to saying, you guys shut up here, so I'm going to have to like call it quits. But she's saying, time out, time out, uh, whatever. Okay, so, oh, that's right, discussion questions. So, we'll get to that point here. Um, was I supposed to do something else, Anne? you got to keep me on track. <laughs> uh, if we could just move on to any questions, someone can. Okay, uh, there's two questions at the end of every section. The first one is the same question for all four faces. And the first question is always going to be, does this face look a little bit different to you now? When I say this, how you look upon this aspect of the new manna, are you looking at it a little bit differently than you did before? And you don't have to give me an answer. This is just for your own introspection. If you want to share it, you're more than welcome to. And the next question, oh, in the wrong section. Okay. Does the bread of life sometimes seem mundane? And I ask this question because, and you can be kind of jot down some thoughts here. So if anyone has any questions or comments, we want to raise your hand. If I don't see any hand raised, I'm going to keep talking. So if you want me to shut up, raise your hand. If Jesus were to walk into this room right now, we knew it was Jesus, and not some hidden. How would we all start reacting? If I was to announce to Northern Kentucky that I actually had enough money to pay Jesus to give this retreat, <laughs> and he showed up, what's that? The room's too small. The room's too small. You would have. The church is too small. Well, I guarantee even people that aren't interested on a daily basis, if I told them that Jesus was actually here, in physical presence that they could see, touch, smell, and experience that. Now, what if I just lowered it a little bit? Okay, I'm probably not going to get Jesus. What if I had the Pope here? Okay, I don't want to hear any comments. Okay, let's just say the Pope that you actually, you know, if it was Pope John Paul when he was alive, or Pope Benedict, or Pope Pius, or, or one of the Popes, whatever it was. So even if it's Pope Francis... You still got a whole string of people that, well, with this room, we would be standing only. We'd have it packed. I could not have it here if I had the Pope giving a retreat and said, you're welcome to come. So if it was Jesus, guess what? You would think that hopefully more people would show up. So if Jesus were to be here, we have a packed audience with Jesus, and yet he's presenting himself anyways, and people aren't there. When's the last time you held Jesus in your hand and felt like you could not hold him? 
Have you ever put them in your hand and for a moment just thought that I've got the world literally in my hands? Anyone ever thought that? Have any of you ever taken Jesus in and for a moment almost started crying? See, we get him all the time, and he showed up the little little host wafer. As a priest, I have him every single day. And sometimes I'm holding him up, and I'm thinking, you know what, Jesus? I'm just not feeling you. Sometimes he gets mundane. And we believe it. But if I was holding up a little Jesus that actually could speak to me, I guarantee you my attitude would be like, I'd be freaked out. But my attitude might be a little bit different <laughs> So and that's part of the problem that we have as the bread of life. Because sometimes it becomes a mundane thing. I hear people say, oh, I need to get my Jesus fixed. I need to go to Mass so I can take in Jesus and be nourished by Jesus. As if he's a piece of bread that's going to just simply get him through the day. He becomes a mundane thing for us. And we all run into that temptation because we're physical people. We need the experience. And our experience of Jesus is what? of a piece of bread. I don't know about you, but the last time I saw a host talking to me, I've never seen a host talking to me. Maybe in my mind, but I've never opened his mouth and gone, oh, I'm Jesus, by the way, I just want to let you that. So I just have to be in faith and look at that, and it can be very difficult. And just think, where's Jesus? Across the parking lot. How many of you, when you drove by the church, felt a pang in your heart that you're driving by the one you're supposed to love the most. It becomes mundane. It's kind of a regular thing, right? Now, I'm not criticizing everybody. I, I'm at the church all the time. And it happens to me. Now, imagine that you were... You're, how many of you are married? I want to say how many married. I'm assuming you all are. You're all married. Okay, so you, now, if they had come separate from you when they were in the church, and you driving here, as soon as you pass by the church, what would you be thinking? My spouse is there. I can't wait to see them. Hopefully you would say that. <laughs> but not because they have to do the dishes or something like that. Because that's what you would be thinking. If my daughter was in that church, that's what I'd be driving by, and I'd be excited to drive by that church. Jesus Christ is in that church, and we drive by. And we just treat it like it's Monday. And that's why I asked that question. So does anyone have any comments at this point? Yes. Just, it really hit me in a way that it hasn't before while you were just speaking with the word mundane. Because he knows. He knows us. He knows we're going to take it for granted. He knows, you know, we're human and, and all our little foibles are. And that, the fact that he knows what he went through and what he is for us, that we treat him as being mundane shows so powerfully how humble he is, how gentle, how patient. I mean, it just hit me like a ton It gets of even better as we go on with this. You're going to find out that you haven't even scratched the surface of just the significance of what we are to him. So we'll get into that later. I don't want to like do the spoiler alerting. I wasn't right. You're looking at the book at the end, so you'll spoil it for yourself. The other thing, um, is 
if we really got us all the summer, we'd never do anything. We'd never do anything else. We wouldn't leave. If we really got it, we'd be crawling on our belts to the altar. And we, we wouldn't leave. From his talk, Father would like us to ponder. Jesus calls himself the new manna, the real bread come down from heaven. While new, he rightfully calls himself manna, for he is given to us by the Father for the same exact reason as the manna was given to the Israelites in the desert. Without the manna, they would have died, even with the other sources of food. The reason is because the manna was special in its qualities. While the Israelites may have been able to manage to get enough basic caloric intake without the manna, they would not have the nourishment needed for the struggles they faced. They would have become sick and fatigued to the point of death. The same holds true for the new manna. Sure, we can technically get spiritual intake from other sources than the bread of life, but we would not have the spiritual nourishment, nor would the world, to make the desert journey of life into the promised land of eternal salvation. The same holds true for the new manna. Sure, we can technically get spiritual intake from other sources than the bread of life, but we would not have the spiritual nourishment, nor would the world, to make the desert journey of life into the promised land of eternal salvation. The purpose of the manna in the desert was fourfold, just as the purpose of Jesus coming to us as the bread of life is fourfold. He is more than just an energy source to help us go from one day to the next. He is the life source that feeds the entire body of Christ. As the bread of life, Jesus does not feed those who consume it. He brings about a spiritual nourishment. As the bread of life, Jesus does not just feed those who consume it. He brings about a spiritual nourishment to every person through the mystery of this gift. This will become evident with each new face.